Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to Nature Works Podcast, where this week I'm speaking with Ollie Pemberton. And I can't lie, I am jealous of Ollie's life because he's a professional cameraman, director and producer, and he specialises in nature-based videography, the sort of stuff that I used to salivate over when I was a kid and wish one day I could grow up to be just like him. It's worse than that, as you'll find out in the podcast, because he has filmed and been up close to two of my absolute favourite animals. And so in this episode, we discuss Ollie's wild childhood growing up in the island or on the island of the Isle of Man. We talk about his two week long forced relationship with a sparrowhawk and also being charged by hippos in pools in the Okavango Delta, as well as a once in a lifetime encounter. Oh my goodness, I hope I get one of these before the end of my days once-in-a-lifetime encounter with a snow leopard high in the Indian mountains. And it almost didn't happen, as you'll hear Ollie tell. Now, if you enjoy this episode and others, and why wouldn't you? These people are absolutely brilliant guests that we're having on. Well, please do share the podcast with other folks who care about the natural world. NatureWorks podcasts always free of the sponsors and advertising and our aim is to provide honest and unbiased insights as best we can into how we can help protect, restore, regenerate and actually I need to start adding this here, rekindle for many people an interest or dare I say it, a love of the natural world. Ollie. Mike. Nice to meet you. How are we doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm going to warn you, whatever you say will be held against you in a court of law because we're recording already. <laughs> uh, where, where are you recording from? This looks like a snazzy, snazzy it, booth. It's pretty snazzy. Hold on a second. For the, uh, we've, we're, we've got a proper setup in here. We've My got, God. We've got a full podcast studio. Hold on, I need to move that back. Yeah, so our office here in Bali smack in the middle of one of the most beautiful areas with rice paddy fields and stuff we've got a really nice office out the front and then the back end is our podcast studio which because there's so much noise that goes on at a certain time of day with bikes we've just basically built a cave so it's a soundproof cave right which is which is not very good if you're claustrophobic but (laughs) but a delight if like me you like tight enclosed spaces and also like to get away from your kids uh I mean that is that is I've got I mean that sounds idyllic and I'm in uh, Bristol at the moment there's like apologies if there's clanging around in the background because there's people putting up scaffolding which I didn't really like uh, you, did, you didn't plan in. for that did you <laughs> plan for that no I might just like try and chase them away but um you know that's the delights of, of Bristol you know well, kind of it's just the same as Bali you know but well, no there's always something going on in 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 Bristol uh, it's my hometown of course I grew up there and I was. That's I'm, what you said, yeah. I'm a born and bone, bro, born and bred Bristolian, mate. Right, I yeah. I can put the accent right back on, and uh, I'm not even putting it on much because my. If you speak to my family, they sounds just like this. 
Amazing. They've, they've How long t- have you been in Bali? Uh, only been in Bali two years, but um, I left Bristol when I was 16 and went on the road traveling as a rock climber around the world and spent 10 years in different countries. And within a couple of years was very aware of the fact that my Bristolian accent uh, confused a lot of people. So started having to work on pronouncing my uh, THs not as Fs. So it wasn't 33, it was 33. (laughs) 33. Yeah. Which part of Bristol are you in? Tossed down. Oh, nice. Tossed down. Yeah. I've been there for a month. It's a good good part of the world. I remember when they used to give houses away for free in Tossedown because nobody wanted them, but it's gentrified now. I could do with one of those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I grew up not far from there in Marksbury Road, which is still pretty bloody rough. I think it's one of the last remnants of roughness in Bristol. Keeping the oh, I love it. Keeping the yeah, as mind. you say, it's got but the, there's there's parts with an edge, you know. But that's like Bristol, isn't it? It's, it's Absolutely, got a, quite an edge to it. Yeah. Um, so you, so you're there for lifestyle or for working with BBC yeah, Wildlife? I mean, or? I'm here for. Are we? So what? Are, are we like? Is is this part of? Are we part? Are we started now? Or we we, like we start. Just... We started the moment you appeared on screen. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> the beauty of podcasts. Uh, well, I I actually. I, I don't know about you. I like the informal nature of uh, of a conversation like this. You know, I don't have a set of questions for you. I have a set of. I, I mean, I have some areas I want to explore with you on this. Um, and uh yeah i typically i start chatting to people straight away so there's not like okay three two one now put on an act it's much better to just no get i see person. but then you and then you we chat and you cut and edit and what have you and yeah we have an uh, editor. we take yeah we'll, we take def- we'll definitely take this bit out that's for sure <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> i just had to understand the format of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. um no, I, I moved down here. I was in London um, for. So originally, I'm from the Isle of Man, um, and I moved to the Big Smoke, uh, London for. Uh, I was there for about ten years, um, and Bristol, yeah, is for exactly that for lifestyle. Just if you leave London and you go two hours out of London, you're still in London. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, you're just the the, the centre. I sound like the tourist board for Bristol, but you know, close to uh, mountains, sea, climbing, all the good stuff that you want, really. Yeah. Um, so, and as you say, yeah, for the for the filming community um, that you get here, it's like it's quite a hub. Yeah, very much it. so. Very much. I know a bunch of people in who work at BBC or used to. I don't know if it's still going. Is it? Is it still BBC Wildlife? natural history oh, yeah. all up there oh very much yeah very much so i think um if you, if you shout bbc natural history unit here i think a few people's heads people. would pop up yeah exactly and uh their hands up yeah, it seems to be a bit of a bit, bit of a hub for it so you grew up on but, you grew up on the isle of man yes i'm a manxi exactly which is which yes. is now a um a special marine protected zone isn't it a unesco site or something a biosphere or something pretty special yeah i the the isle of man um it is it is it's just the more you're away from it the more you become more of an advocate for it more of an ambassador for it because you realize how special it is um and 
I, I think I think the the other man does a, a sort of a good job, or at least like not many people seem to know about this place in the middle of the Irish Sea, and it's it's a kind of it's a Celtic Viking island that is kind of steeped in history and uh, it's it's biodiversity it's a, it's a it's a unesco the entire country is a unesco uh, biosphere so they're the only country in the world to be off, uh, awarded an unesco biosphere status um, because of what they do there and um it's yeah that the, they've got a lot of kind of protected marine areas around the coast and um like all places they're working on trying to be trying to be better um it's it's a funny place where you know the, perhaps in the past you, you there there'd been some some negative perceptions about sort of like, like most island life you know being behind the curb on a few things but what i'm very proud about with the isle of man is that they sometimes are very ahead of the curb for the, the rest of the world and i think it's environmental um awareness perhaps is 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 really cool you know you 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 kind of you live in the uk and you think oh like that, that has a few things that the isle of man are doing uh, ahead of the game than, than than is happening here um so did you but you know grow, but growing up there did you is that where you developed your your love of wildlife and photography and or camera work or or was that something that came later because i would imagine that um is that your you need to put do not disturb on don't you is that your bleep? Uh, sorry, yeah, I'm just actually. I'm, I'm going to get rid of all of these. Yeah. I'm just going to get rid of all of these. Um, There's somebody saying, "I just saw you live broadcasting with Mike Weeks on the NatureWorks <laughs> podcast." Yeah, yeah, which, exactly. Which we're not doing. Um, sorry. That's very unprofessional. That's all right. There's Let's a do. It. There's a do not disturb up in the top right. It's got a little moon icon. I think. I've just. Um, I've just. Down. Yeah. They're so I, w- I would assume living somewhere like that where it's a you've you've got a lot of access to the ocean and also i've never been there so i'm assuming there's still woodlands and and quite a lot of wildlife probably a good place to foster dreams of going off to no, exactly. Af- africa and filming elephants no it, it is it you know it's 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 very it's very safe there so as a kid you can um you can just sort of get let out your front door and just just, just roam in the mountains i always i always kind of des- describe it to people as um it's like a love child of scotland and cornwall come together mm. so it's kind of got that um you can have the scottish highlands in one minute with covered in heather you could be driving around and hiking up in the 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 mountains looking at um hen harriers and uh, covered in purple heather and then the next minute you can be down in a kind of quaint fishing village with but with huge cliffs it's got an abundance of life there and it's um it very much so does did fuel that love for the outdoors you know obviously you're watching the attenboroughs as a kid you know as, as a bit of inspiration but then you only need to just get out the front door and you know as a kid on the isle of man you you would uh, you could be snorkeling with a couple of basking sharks in the afternoon wow. um you know jump in and and that was that was something I, I always noticed as a kid was the amount of these great big sharks and they were just there they were just part of it. every summer you know you'd just be out on the boat on a beautiful evening uh, evening light and you're seeing these like seven foot dorsal fins coming through and um i think it's just i don't want to chuck in stats uh on the sort of on the biology side and sort of like uh you know make it up but 
it's it's richness of waters i think is something that really drew them uh, to the island um obviously home of the manx shearwater which would oh, is uh, it? come yes yeah so like they they would come there we've also um i think it's not the biggest population but i think that's where they were kind of you know first recognized as having its kind of breeding colony because they struggled uh, for a very long time didn't they they actually became in, yes. uh, an endangered species i think or, or very close to yeah and, and you know you, you, you're going to have stronger populations on scoma in wales mm. and things like that but uh, we we retained the manxness of it with the manx shearwater on it on the name so um yeah it, it, and you got bizarre things as well on the isle of man with um you, you know we got sheep with four horns we got cats with no tails we've got uh, we've got <laughs> people wall- with two wallaby. heads people with two heads exactly <laughs> three legs uh we got wallabies wild wallabies in the north you know wow when, when, from... when were they imported they escaped from the zoo uh 50 years ago and then they just decided to to live uh <laughs> about a hundred meter sort of like two mile radius from the zoo and they just like nobody could be bothered to pick them up i don't know they just lived there <laughs> so if you go for a walk in the currucks in the north um you will find wallabies jumping around which is which is a it's it's an interesting one because it's a nice it's it's a it's a great story for the wallaby but it's it's also locally it's a it's terrible for the local wildlife so there is a bit of a push to try and is it they're just like a bit they're basically a big rabbit aren't they i mean i've seen lots of wallaby i lived in australia for many years it's a a good description they do it's funny because you think wow wallaby and you're going to be confronted by you know a giant kangaroo sort of thing Mm. and and you see them in the bush and they they do look like sort of extended not much more than the hair yeah exactly um so it's quite cool to say now we have native wallabies, but the problem is they are a bit of a pest. They are starting to, again, I go back to hen harriers. You know, they they nest in the grassland oh, yeah. in this area. So the wallabies start kind of creating these these warrens and these paths through and just knocking all this down. So, yeah, um, again, pros and cons of the madness of the, the, the wildlife. But again, it is it's a stunning place and it, it it's pace of life on the Isle of Man is, is it's, it's very, it's very slow. And you, 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 you're, you're able to soak in the wildlife, you know, it's not a huge place, but you just feel surrounded by um, the, the richness of the wildlife you get there. You can, you can, you sort of come more tuned in. And when I, every time I go home, I just sort of, there's a lot of times where you can just go to the coast and you just literally you, you switch on. You know, I'm sure you, you do in Bali there. You know, you spend your time just like zoning in, but it seems amplified there. Um, call it cheesy, maybe I'm again just being a no, proud Manxi. But no, I get uh, it. It, it. I I think there's an attune, attunement of the senses when you're in a, in a in a context or an environment that has a a richness of natural life. Yeah, it's actually the opposite here. So it to look at it you see green everywhere but mm. when you actually understand what enables that green it's all typically chemical farming everything here down in the lowlands it's different up in the mountains but in the lowlands it's it's all monoculture so it's all rice farming and it's all with yeah. chemical inputs and we actually our company has a farm here that we're restoring acres of land with non-chemical uh, bio regenerative organic farming and one of the first things i've done is is 
put lots of set aside areas so that all of the wild plants can come back in we've also put in dozens and dozens of rows of wildflowers that would typically grow in this area but are not because they're competition to the rice to the local farmers and now and you know i'm a busy guy but i can spend 20 30 minutes just standing on the farm looking at all the bugs that have come in in only six to eight weeks and that's that's the first time i've started as you say tuning in or adjusting my senses to the activity because before that you could stand in a i mean i could take you to any green field here that looks gorgeous you won't see a single bug in it because it's sprayed within an inch of its life and and so we're bringing that back in now don't get me wrong there's lots of sort of hedgerow areas and streams and rivers and and the likes but in a developing country like this that's also unbelievably uh populated I mean, there's 290 million people here in Indonesia, and I, I'm, I don't know what the population of Bali is, but there are very few areas in civilized areas, you know, with access to resources, shops and things, where there's not just a huge volume of people. And so it looks green, and you have all of the ocean, of course, but there's not much wildlife. Um, and all with the pollution, the runoff, all the plastic, we, we collect about 150 pounds of plastic every week, just out of one tiny stream. So, um, you know, it's got some serious problems. When you talk about the Isle of Man, I, I want to, if it wasn't for the weather, I'd want to pack my bags and go and live somewhere like that, you know, because of the pristineness. Yeah. I, look, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Like it, it's still, it's not, it's not an example of pristineness. I'm, I'm, I am sort of, I'm very proud of it, but there's, there's work, there's, there's always work to be done anywhere. And it's, it's not, it's not separate from from climate change it's still mm. you know it's a place that needs to work better everyone needs to work better but you know it's 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 something that is nice i think if you live in a city or you live somewhere uh in the in the busy uk you know having that ability to go back and um as you say tune your senses or kind of uh, i hate using the word recalibration but it it, it, it does a good word it does, does almost fit, feel like that you know just sort of having that place and, but, you, but you must um, do that a lot because you go into these environments as a cameraman. Yeah. And yes. I've, I've stalked <laughs> you on Instagram and I've seen <laughs> that there are, you've, you've got image or video footage and an image of two of my absolute favorite species. And I'm really jealous because one I've seen numerous times and as a kid was obsessed by, I was an ornithologist as a kid, completely obsessed. Yes. All I did was bird watching and animal watching as a kid. Oh Yeah. Um, so I saw that you had uh, that you were taking photos of sparrowhawk uh, near your home during lockdown. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then the other one, of course, is is every wannabe wildlife cameraman, me, me being in that domain as a, a you know as opposed to a pro like yourself, uh, the snow leopard. I mean, Ooh. my God, you 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 got, <laughs> you, you got to film one of those, and both of those. And the reason I mentioned both of those is because they're both ferociously secretive animals mm. and yes. so you must have to attune your senses enormously when you're going into the environments that you're going into because you're not going to film people you're going into film wildlife that doesn't want to be filmed especially snow lions and got and sparrow hawks yes exactly no exactly no that you're absolutely right um both of them the sparrow hawk is something we see more in our life, and uh, you know, in the UK, it's it's you can you can see the sparrow hawk, and it's um, not as mysterious as the snow leopard. But but yes, as you still need to retain that 
level of respect to, to get a, a time filming it. That, that was quite funny because the Sparrowhawk was in in lockdown. Um, I, for personal reasons, went back to the Isle of Man to, to be with my family uh, during lockdown. And to do that, obviously, the Manx government had set a total embargo on anyone coming through like the 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 the, um the drawbridge was down and you know as a current non-manx resident i couldn't even get back to see my family so we 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 i did get back and had to do bizarrely the whole like the whole world had to do you had to do these strange things to enable to see your family but um we had to rent an airbnb in the mount like and this particular one it was a beautiful spot up in the mountains, but myself and my brother were there and we were there for two weeks to do our lockdown. Um, uh, you do your two weeks isolation before then being able to, to see your family. Uh, and and you were basically sort of frog marched to your, your house that you were staying in. Um, so I was like, okay, I've got two weeks in the space. What do I do? The, the owners of the Airbnb said, well, you're a wildlife filmmaker. You'll be pleased to hear there's a sparrowhawk nest in the garden. And I was like, are you joking? So I spent basically two weeks just living in a bush in uh, in this in this house in this garden, and it was on a hill, so that I the 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 tree in which it was living in was the same level as oh. if I climbed up. Wow! Right. It could be the same level, so it was in the bush for most of it. And at the beginning, it would dive bomb me, say basically, "What are you doing here?" And then I worked out a system of if I completely cover myself, you know, and get more cammed up. I can just lie in there and eventually then you're you're able to see the chicks coming out and you're, you're seeing the feeding patterns you're watching the dynamics of the I mean yeah you, you, I mean it was lockdown you, everyone went a bit weird didn't they but I got completely immersed in this sparrowhawk family life and I was just sort of photographing them it was very intimate and uh, this one particular moment where right at the end um and my 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 dad, bless him, he came to to pick up my brother and I right at the end. And I would just got to the moment where they're getting comfortable with me, and uh, the chicks are starting to emerge. And I was like, "Yes, brilliant!" And then I just heard this, "Holly, Holly, we're going now!" Off they flew, and I was just like, "Oh, brilliant! Thanks, Dad." <laughs> <I just spent laughs> two, yeah, two weeks of pain. This one moment, <laughs> lovely, by the way. <laughs> I've missed you. Uh, so it's very intimate, but uh, the, the the snow leopard, though, you know, is is obviously takes a big level degree more you know of, of of getting out there and the environment is a lot harsher before, before we um, go into the snow leopard because there's a lot i want to ask you around yeah. that the, oh, yeah. the sparrow hawks to have that degree of of time imposed upon you i you know yeah that, that feel actually to me sounds like an incredible privilege you know that i'm not being no you're right to the, you're right just just such an, an amazing opportunity but did you find that you that you started to understand the creature more because like you said you were watching its patterns of the feeding and everything else i mean yeah. was there were the revelations that only unfolded over that regular time or did you already know enough about you know enough about hawks no, to I, I mean i i'd never spent i i guess that amount of time that amount of intimate time with any wildlife before right i think for most, for most people Lockdown was the time of revelations, heartbreak, mm. uh, you know, hard times for everybody. 
um, and you find these strange little winds popping up in in a time that was enforced on you, you know. Um, I guess I'm very privileged and fortunate enough to to find some wins in in such a difficult time because I know there's there's so many people out there who yeah. who would say there was not one win. Yeah. So to have you're right, it is it was a huge privilege because uh, you know not it was a strange time being forced into a lockdown, but to have that access to a an amazing raptor right in front of me, you know, yeah. I totally agree. Like in terms of revelations, just having that intimate time with any wild animal, specifically mm. an impressive one like that. And I think uh, it, usually you see the female a sparrow hawk a lot. You know, you, you see that beautiful um, sort of white and grey plumage on the front. They're usually the the main kind of. You sort of seem to see the ma- them as the main hunter. Whenever you see footage of, of sparrowhawks, it's usually the female doing the legwork. But it was quite cool to see the dynamics with the male popping in every now and again to say hello. A lot smaller, with a bit bit of a colour on the front. You know, less impressive than the female. But seeing the feeding dynamics and how they um, chose certain trees to to kind of guard the nest or look out they had favorite lookout points to have yeah you, you do become a bit of a sort of big brother camera onto its life um i had a, a good sim- distraction a great distraction i would say for <laughs> for lockdown life just to be welcomed in or not welcomed in sort of more enforce myself into their lives but just to have that as a distraction uh from the, the everything was uh, yeah it was a real privilege and so did, did you come into um cinematography through mm. wildlife or did that come after just learning to be a cameraman not just a cameraman no, the, but a general cameraman oh no it, it, all, it all started um i, I the, the wildlife and outdoors was always like a, a big part of who i was as a kid growing up you know like yourself obsessed with birds obsessed with collecting things in the garden, putting them in matchboxes, like going out and just, you know, and obviously then you think, how, how can I spend more time in the outdoors? Mm, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, how can I do this? And you know that as a kid early on, you know, you are just an outdoor weirdo. And then um, you then you watch in Attenborough uh, as a kid, like, like so many people in my industry. And you have that moment where you're like, these people are working out there. Mm. That's their job. Right. I need to somehow make that happen. So, um, yeah, I, I actually took that path after I knew I wanted to do that. And um, after university, I, I self-taught, essentially. So I sort of left university and I said to myself, right, we need to do this, this outdoor filmmaking thing, as it were. Uh, but I didn't have a clue, like most people after uni, how do you get into it? Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet some amazing people, get some amazing advice from the British Natural History Unit. Um, and I, I had three options, go back to school to learn filmmaking, but I didn't have the money. Um, or go uh, travelling around the world, arrogantly making films that no one would want to see, and I didn't have any money. <laughs> so what? <laughs> There's a pattern I... evolving here. Yeah, exactly. At the time, it's hard to do with no money and no skills as well. You know, you just need to build up the skills. So um, 
one option that I took, which I, I'm very now fortunate for taking, was uh, I joined uh, an adventure travel company that, and that enabled me to travel. Um, and in that time, I would would film. I'd make very bad films in my spare time. Uh, and we're talking now, you know, 11 years ago when I started doing, doing this. Um, and I would do night school. I would do all the kind of things in my power to to build up this skill set. I'd, I'd go to all sorts of courses and edit and build up, build up, build up. I joined the Royal Marines Reserves for um, four years to get sort of more outdoor uh, proficiency and have that ability to just be absolutely in tune with not worrying about getting wet and cold because they just instill that in you. So, you know, that was it. just building skills until eventually you make a film that somebody commercially goes, oh, that, that's that's quite nice and then you realize you can continue it which and, which one was you know, that for you what was that film uh, for me it was just it was filming with the with the travel company and it was uh, it was actually a husky expedition that they were running um and i was able to to film that experience and they, they used it commercially and i realized that actually you know th- this could lead on to something you know we can actually make this into a profession and that the royal way um and then um and yeah, it, it, it led on from that and um, it, it led on to being able to always had that passion to create impact films, always wanted to to get more on the conservation side, more on the wildlife and outdoor. Because also people are a huge part of the, the, the environment that we film as well. We can't just blase pretend that people don't exist and, and we want to film this idyllic world that is pristine without humans that's that's more of the disney sort of angle isn't it that that uh, it's it's all utopia but they are such a huge part in it and 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 a huge part of the story and storytelling has always been i think a huge medium for the natural world Uh, and and that's to summarize all of that i i love storytelling and i think it's um if you combine that with the outdoors um and kind of the, the human element you 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 can create quite powerful um mediums to to sort of help both um yeah i think, I think the story the storytelling is an essential storytelling and transferring that to some form of media is essential in the mission if you like to to protect the planet because if you can't inspire a love for the natural world for all the people who live in cities who are not getting out into areas where they're seeing sparrow hawks or or definitely not snow le- snow leopards um mm. you know there's a lot of people who spend their entire lives in cities and their only access to the natural world and their only access to understanding the need to protect it is through the sort of films that you make and i mean david attenborough's probably done more to protect the natural world than anyone in any of the large organizations just through the very fact that he's brought it to our homes and we've gone holy shit this is incredible i will donate to the world wildlife fund i will donate to green pit or whatever your you know flavor of courses absolutely absolutely and it it, it also just enables you to put a spotlight on things people and initiatives that perhaps wouldn't be able to have that spotlight and it's Again, you come back to the word privilege, but to, to be able to to 
to do that and give these uh, people and organisations that spotlight through storytelling, it becomes more of a powerful medium. And when you see it kind of leading on to knock-on effects, you realise that, you know, w- words are also very powerful. You know, you, you do need articles and blogs um, and that can explain somebody's story. But for me, I, I, through how I've grown up and, and that love for the outdoors and, and, and bringing everything together, it, if I can take that and put it into a visual story um you know, sound is also so important but you know i find it uh, an incredibly powerful medium and it's and and how great to be able to amplify people's stories who who wouldn't because so many people are doing incredible things around the world um even even people who are just living in the environment are just day to day just actually surviving in an environment that we would view as as tough mm-hmm. They themselves are doing incredible things, way more than we could even imagine back in our kind of cushy lives in the UK. So, um, you know, that, that it's it's often those stories, these these kind of amazing people who um, it's so nice to give them airtime and maybe, in, as you say, inspire others who watch it to go. That's what an incredible way to to sort of view things and and. Uh, I watched your mm-hmm. video. Um, I wrote it down because I couldn't remember how to pronounce it. Uh, Gumu, Ngumu, Ongumu, Ongumu. Yes, Ongumu. Ongumu. Yes. That yeah. Yeah. What? It, what? It, what? It, that. I mean, there's some tough people in that doing some. What inspired that? <laughs> that film. Yeah. That. That's the um, less on the environmental side of it's things. More social. That is more. It's more social. Yeah. That. That. That is more. Um, there's some incredible women on uh, Kilimanjaro um, who are mountain guides. Who have necks of steel from the looks of it. Necks of steel. Yeah. Because they mean, carry these loads on their heads. <laughs> yes. So so you get, um, within the travel, a huge goal of many people um, around the world is to climb Kilimanjaro and say they're on the highest point of... Uh, Africa, you know, they've made the roof of Africa, and lots of people say they've conquered Kili, but um, I don't think there's anyone who's conquered Kili without the the, the guides and the porters because they carry all of your stuff. Just like Everest. Just like Everest. This is the the commercialization of mountain of mountains that we live in today. You have got the the purist who's going off and and climbing. Uh, unknown peaks on their own but if you want to do the big the big ones uh the the, the that have more of a spotlight um you know, your seven summits then you get in the commercial realm and uh as you say like everest kilimanjaro is no different uh it it's great that it brings employment to um the, the local people because they they become porters and it's another source of income in quite a, a tricky area but having people saying they they conquered it to themselves that's we've moved on from that guys like just just let's not try and veil that up like you haven't let's you have plodded yourself up to the top which is fantastic it's the feat it is a feat well done but let's let's give credit where it's due to the the, the local teams and i think in gumu it takes it uh, one step further in the sense that it is a spotlight specifically on the the female uh, porters because it's hard enough to be a porter itself but to be a female 
porter, uh, the, the, the bag carriers, and they're carrying 20 kilos on their head uh, in a very male-dominated society uh, out in, in Tanzania. Um, it's hard enough to break into that because it, it, it perhaps the perception was to be working in fields with the kids and staying at home. So to have this amazing group of women turn up and say, we want to work here carrying the bags where the first perception was you probably can't do this. This is too heavy for you. And they said, well, screw you. We do this with holding babies, you know, in the fields anyway, so we can do this. And it it took a a small group of women to prove that they can also be porters and um, do it just as well as the men. And uh, so Ngumu follows uh, their story and uh follows them all the way to the top and here's the kind of uh you know stories from their 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 mouths and and how how they find kind of working in a very male dominated area and um the again the the travel company um exodus travels who sponsored the film they they subsequently went on to creating the mountain lioness project uh from it where every year um I think I think they're going for three years, but they they want to. Um, the the idea being is that every year they are fully funding training for porters, female porters, to become uh, a ten ten a year basically to become fully trained mountain guides, because to get from porter to mountain guide with a significant pay rise, you have to go through English lessons, mm-hmm. you have to go through various training, wilderness things. So uh, it's very cool to say that three years on from that film we have almost about 30 more m- female mountain guides yeah. on Kilimanjaro which is wicked yeah really really cool so you're using a porter to take half your camera equipment up Kilimanjaro with them I assume <laughs> no 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 I, yeah I, do you know what mate I did I did think about it halfway through I was like can I have a, the help? <laughs> no, I ended up. I ended up like I, I just. I, I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to doing that. So I, I carried it all on my back, and I sort of uh, wrongly tried to, you know, I tried to film uh, lots of on the move interviews um, to them walking to camera, and obviously that's quite tricky when you're walking up backwards. <laughs> in Killy with all this weight yeah on. absolutely uh, so, so I, I you know I've been on I've been in and a part of a number of TV series and one where we spent two years going around the world on all sorts of incredible adventures and it is way easier for the people in front of the camera than the people carrying the camera you're you're having thanks, to mate. it is I mean I look, you, have, you have to carry all the kit then you have to be running ahead and catching shots you might have to be running up to the side and catching wides you probably doing something from behind and if you're in an environment where in this film that you're talking about where you're trying to catch capture people in their at their most natural you're also trying to mm. not be intrusive because the moment a camera comes out it changes human behavior probably changes animal behavior as well if they know it's there but where it changes human behavior people become unless they're accustomed to it they just start behaving differently and that's not what you want because you can spot that a mile off or you know on screen yeah. so but how, what's the process like for you to go to a place like that and then spend i would Im- imagine a week or so filming going up kilimanjaro right how long were you there for and 
that was uh, eight eight days. Um, but with, with all these with all these films, where as exactly as you said, like you don't want to change the course of how you know. With that particular example, you know, it's it's a moving engine. It's going to go from beginning to end, and they're going to be doing their job. And I don't want to intrude in their profession. So it's more on me uh, as a filmmaker to sort of satellite them, like, uh, you know, just furiously running around uh, as they're moving. You're kind of some strange moon yeah. to their yeah. planet. You're like, you're, you're like the collie dog that when you go for a four mile walk has done 30 by the time you get back exactly exactly with the, the same amount of like uh passing out at the end of the day yeah, <laughs> yeah. except you're not allowed to pass out before then because you want to capture them passing out and you want to capture the moon above their tents and you want to capture the fire going out and you want to capture the fire it's so true and the owl it's hooting so it's non-stop yeah. it's non it's non-stop and then you <laughs> And then you, you know, because you, as you say, you've been running around and then you, you capture all of that and then you everyone goes to bed and then you have to download everything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Which usually takes about an hour or two. And then it's sort of midnight and then you're up at four in the morning to get yeah. the sunrise stuff. It's and, a bloody difficult job. You, oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's just amazing to be out there. But yeah, it does, you, you are, you do finish shoots, especially with this type of filmmaking, more kind of, in, I guess, uh, personal and impactful, but within the the natural world, you just come back from the shoot and you have that element of what the hell just happened, and then you pass out, and then three days later you emerge from your your coma and uh, you're like, great <laughs> to look at all your go. footage, and then have to spend hours sat on your ass in an edit suite. Oh yeah, but no, I absolutely love it. I love the um, unpredictability of uh, you can storyboard a film as much as you you like, but within the natural world you're never gonna storyboard those moments that just come from just nature doing its thing um and i i love that i love the unpredictability obviously it's it's so key to have that why are you here why are you going to tell this story how are you going to impact the the people and places that you'd film in but you've always got that element of excitement in in you of of you don't know what's going to happen uh you know um and that's happened quite a few times on shoots we we filmed for two weeks in the sahara i ran the marathon de Saab with my wife and jack awesome. jack osborne uh we were making the tv series <laughs> oh of yeah jack osborne yeah. adrenaline junkie which is when we went around yes. the world for two years doing all these amazing stunts thank you itv2 and uh, and the other channels <laughs> yes. for sponsoring the the greatest holiday i've ever been on in my life um but within two days of arriving in Sahara and it was one of the worst marathon de Saabs for sandstorms up to that date to the point where mm. they actually over 80 people dropped out on day one and people were being hospitalized and sent off in helicopters and one person was found in a coma face down it got up to 50 degrees nope. I didn't even know anywhere on the planet went to 50 degrees and I ran through that heat but by the end of day two we'd lost two cameras uh reds that, uh, because of sand that we just couldn't and so you know our cameraman danny was just and we had three cameramen on that shoot and they were just freaking out because we were down to one main camera and then a bunch of small supporting cameras for the rest of the like eight days there um and Ooh. these are things that when you're watching it at home you just never consider you know, you're capturing these incredible environments, but you're sat watching it in your cozy armchair going, oh, that looks cold. 
Yes. <laughs> the cameraman yeah. knows it was fucking cold. Because <laughs> 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 he sat there for five days filming penguins with 50 mile yeah. an hour winds in, you know, minus 20 yeah, yeah. or whatever it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And you have to capture, you have to capture, if you're doing a film within the natural world, you have to capture what it is to be cold. You, mm. You're not just filming cold, but then, you know, that, that's it. You, you can't narrate to, it. You can't narrate it. You have to get, you need to immerse people into what it's like to be cold. And to do that, you have to get very, very cold, capture the wind, get very, very windy, you know, but that that's all part of the, you know, the, the, the whole picture of being able to be in all these environments. Which what, is just what's been the most extreme location that you've been to for filming? Most difficult, um, most challenging. Um, extreme. Well, obviously the, the, the variety is, is awesome. And, and for example, up in uh, filming the, the snow leopards was at altitude and very cold. Um, Where was that in Pakistan or? That was actually in um, Hemis National Park in India. Um, But I think the the most extreme, I mean, I've I've just literally come back from a shoot in Botswana um, on the Okavango Delta. And we we transected from the the north, the panhandle, where the the floods sort of come into, down to... um, the, ve- the very bottom where the buffalo fence is, where that ends the discernible uh, wilderness section, as it were. Um, and the whole point of the film is to highlight the the polars who live the the Baye people who live on the Okavango. Um, they are uh, they're sort of the guardians of the Okavango. They are they are the lifeline. They, they live they live on it. They they rely on it but they also are su- such an important part of its its mid's makeup so it was to, to go from the north to the south with with them highlighting their skills and their their life and honestly like that as a beautiful place that it was uh, there were some unbelievably tense moments because the Okavango is we talk about Disney wildlife it is just it is just an unbelievable amount of everything that you think of Africa, it's all in there. It's just been swept into the Okavango and you've got just so many elephants, so many hippos. It is an absolute utopia of life. So for a filmmaker, it was just, you know, point your camera somewhere and, and shoot as much as you can. But if you're going down and down the Okavango on these, they're called Makoros, which yeah. are these little canoes, which, you know, for those who have visited the Okavango, I'm sure you've seen them. But in the north, it's very, very very wild there's there's no one you, I, we didn't see anyone for for um i think the 10 days we were doing it we didn't see a single soul until right at the end um and the main thing was the hippos and crocs and i think like it's that element of you can do everything in your power to survive in the best way you can but and and mitigate danger and, and be prepared for things but you can't really prepare for a hippo being under your canoe. Uh, for, they hold their breath for around, you know, six to nine minutes. Um, they they can come up at any moment. And they're aggressive. And they're so aggressive. And you look for the signs. We had one particular day that will just stick with me forever where just, it's just tense that we went through this incredibly high concentration of, of hippos and crocs uh, in this one stretch on the Okavango. 
and you, you get through one lagoon by you, you pull in and uh, you go through the papyrus grass because what's happened is the uh, the floods hadn't particularly come to, uh, hadn't come fully to that area so still you had to look, kind of bash your way through the papyrus grass and you're like really in the thick of it and you'd come to a pool and the the polars suddenly everything got so tense you know so everyone was wired the tension was palpable you could just sort of feel that the, the, the laughing jovial polars were just suddenly very very serious and every pool we went to they would wait for six to nine minutes to see if anything comes up and then before entering the pool before entering the pool ah, you'd wait interesting because they'll flip you in the boat they would, they would they would munch the canoe in half and then you'd be having to run or swim as fast as you can but in that pampas grass the papyrus grass, sorry in that papyrus grass With crocs in, and hippos everywhere oh man um so yes it's it was it was a it was just such a proper expedition are, such are the guides carrying guns against something like that or are they no yeah. no 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 so they're just they're, they're being precautionary they're using, not reactive they're using they're using incredible knowledge uh and and a lifetime of experience living in there so they're probably laughing at how like tense I felt the whole thing was because they're just like, well, this is normal. But when you see them all switch into to go mode, then mm. you know it's quite serious. We did just you, kept on doing. Like, did you have any hippos or, or or crocs? Yeah, come we out, had come we had you. we had one the classic cameraman thing. So you know, uh, as as the filmmaker, I'm sort of filming all the action, and then this bull hippo comes up right next to our canoe on Makoro right there and then it's sort of you have that Blair Witch type footage of uh, me run like us jumping out and running to the side as it kind of came towards us so and did it um, what did it do I was just curious uh, it, it, it was just mock charging uh, right. us really um but to 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 be in that environment you know it was again with them and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have lasted a second without their knowledge and their incredible skills that they they've grown up there you know like i said they, they've been doing it since they were tiny knowing how to navigate these things and but, what was it about yeah. their culture that you were capturing then what's the what's the film it was, it was it was more because if you go to um the okavango as a tourist and tourist it, to, tourism is the main source of income for these people uh, who live there and through COVID, it was like everybody, it was incredibly tough and they didn't have any income whatsoever. So that did affect, um, you know, the, the, how things operated in, in the Okavango. And um, it, it's to show it's to show people who do visit how important they are to the the, the ecosystem, to encourage people to, to go because that you will be sourcing them um, with, with income. But don't just view them as 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 taxi water taxis. See how highly skilled these individuals are. Um, give them again more of a spotlight into into their lives and into into the incredible wild area that is the Okavango. I, I met an amazing ecologist at the end of it, Dr. Mike Murray Hudson, um, who's a, who's a wetland specialist, and he was talking to me about the the flows and the predictable unpredictability of the the flow of the water in the Okavango. And he just said, do you know what, what really appeals to me about the Okavango is that it wouldn't matter if you were there or not. 
it just would not matter <laughs> at all. <laughs> and I just thought, what a brilliant, brilliant thing to have is that he said, if the tree falls in the forest, it's that thing. It's just that if you're there, it just would not matter. And it's so true. It's just everything going on, just life. Um, I listened but, to an, you know, an incredible podcast on, I think it was either, <laughs> it might have been the Nat, Nat Geo or it was BBC Earth. And it was all about the mapping of the Okavango. Yeah. And there's a, con I don't know if it was that gentleman you just mentioned, but were a conservationist who's lived there for 20 or 30 years who got sponsorship to be able to go from the very source to the very end of the mm. rivers and the floodplains. And it took them months to do it. Uh, yes. And they nearly gave up a bunch of times because they had to pull for days and days because yes. the water wasn't high enough. Through this low-level no. water, you know, mosquitoes and bugs and leech and all that st stuff. But it just sounded, well, like going back in time before humans, where the, the, the degree of life is just so rich, it's been untainted, a bit like your man just said, or you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I, I, that's the Into the Okavango expedition. They went, I mean, we did a very small... We did the the delta itself. They were going, I think, from mapping. I think it was like a four month expedition mm, yeah. uh, from from the, the um, source the pools. Source yeah, the very source to pools. The, to map map the entire thing. And this this particular film was was more about the 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 people of the delta themselves. So I, I think that they had a more scientific like look at the the effect of the delta. Um, which is going to take a, a lot longer. I mean, epic trip. I, I, I've only just sort of now doing that. I'm like, well, I'll, yeah, get me back there. You know, very, ref very refreshing, isn't it, to to go to places like that? Again, you know, well, how how lucky to have that as a to, to be able to go to places like that. Botswana seems to me to be one of the African countries that's really got its act <laughs> together. They've they've really emphasised conservation, yes. tourism. I mean, they have an incredibly yeah. strong economy um they're one of the lowest on the corruption list etc but they're it, it's a it's a perfect well it's a good example it's not a perfect example it's a good example of how countries can can lift themselves into the modern world without actually destroying the natural world mm. as well because they very much yes. seem to have prioritized uh nature as may, maybe not above human progress but certainly as a, a necessity for bringing in tourism especially yeah, those ab abso absolutely they they recognize it for sure and i think um you know that there are other countries that i, I think it's very important to to recognize both the, the human and the wildlife element i mean it's it's such a such a big problem especially in areas um parts of the world where people are living in such wild areas and their livelihoods depend on hand to mouth, like mm. feeding themselves. Um, but then you have the problem of wildlife coming in and destroying it. You have such a different, uh, I, I would, Botswana, yes, is, is a very good example of like retaining, um, but they still have their own problems of human wildlife conflict for sure. They've done very well at highlighting the the beauty of the area i think that that every country in this area that has such spicy wildlife is gonna have that human wildlife conflict and I, i've done a um a shoot with savo trust in kenya 
in February. Um, and they that was a, a pure focus on um, the, the human wildlife conflict element that you get in these harsh areas. And it's just incredible the that what some of these organizations are actually doing to, to to counteract and combat that and there's some really amazing thought processes and um you know initiatives going on right now that enable people to um it, it it's so easy for for us to to sit back and um and go wow aren't elephants amazing you know aren't they um, so I'm sort of rambling now onto uh, this 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 subject of human wildlife conflict from Botswana, but well, I'm going to ask you about it, the elephants because that's I've got that written down here because I know you've been doing working with elephant tracking, haven't you, on the latest <laughs> project? Oh yeah. Um, so so that was uh, that was the Savo Trust. Thing. Was. So right. yes, so so these guys just just increase <laughs> the Savo area is. Is, is very harsh to, to live in. It is, it is again, it is it's huge. It's an amazing wild area of Kenya that holds the the, the Tuskers. You know, okay. that's where you get yeah, your, the- your last Tusker elephants. Huge amounts of wild dog, but it's a very harsh, very different to the Okavango, which is just this utopia of life, which still retains that problem of human wildlife conflict anyway, which in, side note, in Botswana during COVID, of course, with the lack of jobs, that increased that, mm. that conflict uh, time. So still have that problem wherever. But um, I was it was really cool to be able to bring to life a story of uh, an initiative that Savo are doing to try and balance out this uh, this perception of uh, conflict uh, in in um, within the local people who live on the fringes of Savo, and it's quite a cool model i guess that they're they're trying out that could be used elsewhere because um i'll just sort of dive into it because the 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 people who live there um the camba they uh in it, it, it does not get a lot of rainfall in that area you know and it is a hard place to and especially after covid you know the to, the moment you start growing something and you're trying, you have to grow your own produce in that area to, to feed your family. An elephant will come in straight away and it will eat your uh, green shoots. And if that happens time and time again, and you're not making any food for your family, I, 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 I totally understand. Like I would mm. also not view that elephant i would i you can see you can see how it gets to that element of um of, of bushmeat poaching yeah you know you you get it you you can't just sit back here in the uk on your sofa and go how dare they the sentient beautiful creatures like you're not living you're gonna have this 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 conflict um so it was a, a you know I, I was able to to chat to a lot of these guys about how their lives have been affected by elephants. And I say specifically elephants because they are the problem, uh, main problem. They just kind of bulldoze in, destroy everything and and come, come back out. So what they, what they have done, Savo Trust is they set up this thing called the the 10% project. And it's a really clever thing is that um, let's say your, your uh, Shamba owner has, what's a Shamba? uh, 
sorry, a chamber is a is like a farm plot. Okay. So he's got his own sort of farm plot, and he owns hundred hectares of land. Like say, so it's a huge area, and they own lots of land. Previously, these guys had been trying to farm sporadically on their land all over the place. So Savo with a with a uh, another um, organization called Tafalti, they came together and they with a system of hydroponics. They thought, what if we took ten percent of that land that they had? So all of this land, what if we concentrated all of that into ten percent into a a fenced off area and the area being we're talking an elephant proof fence that has porcupine sticks coming out of it because elephants are super smart in the area they know that their tusks um don't conduct electricity so they'll come up to the fence they'll push it down they'll get their trunks and they'll pull out the 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 fences and then they're in so these porcupine spikes enable them to not be able to get to the fence itself height solar powered high voltage very simple to run 10% area and within that you intensely farm uh in that small plot rather than trying to do the huge area and they found that in doing that in this small area of protection their yield of crop their crop yield increased hundredfold you know like they were they suddenly had this ability to actually grow something and the the benefit to the wildlife was that they had way more land suddenly to to roam through mm. so your, your transient animals could actually pass through this this area so you had this model of suddenly the 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 community had started to build this culture of conservation themselves they themselves were an invested owner in the project rather than being told this is you know what's going on they were seeing the benefits of them themselves and i think um i think you see that so much ar- around the world is that um it what a successful model can be is when the people who live in the area they become the invested owners in the project themselves rather than somebody telling them how to do it yeah absolutely and so 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 to see to see this firsthand and to see like it's only in pilot stages and they've done sort of I think 10 plots now that are all incredibly successful and working and it's now growing. Um, yeah, that was, that was amazing to see. I interviewed uh, Steve Box, who's a famous PhD marine biologist, and he's one of the world's leading experts on fishery management and coral reef. And yeah. he was saying the same thing, that if you try and impose onto fishery areas all of these regulations and set-asides without getting the local community to own it because in an area let's say here in indonesia you'll have you'll have literally thousands of small groups of fishermen who are all dependent upon one ocean ocean area i mean we're talking hundreds if you know hundreds of miles but within that you'll have these almost sort of tribal communities and yeah. um, they have to all come into agreement. And once they do, and once they they are invested in it, and once they realize the, the benefit of it, then it takes off, you know, because they're also, I mean, they're, they can't really protect their, their areas very much from large, let's say, Chinese fishing fleets who are coming in and doing bottom dredging. 
but they do manage to protect enough of the areas from them their own fishing because they've all agreed it's this area is set aside for a year or this area is what we're only going to fish this one species etc and i think we've we've had far too long of of uh, the western mindset of coming in and imposing on small communities that we know best yeah absolutely Ele- elephants yeah, I... come, elephants come first because you know david attenborough <laughs> the... talks about them <laughs> no this is it this is it i think it's just uh, that is a is a very archaic personally like that's an archaic way of doing things it, it just doesn't it just is is not going to be a long-term solution whereas like having if you have if you have the ability to think outside the box and and help in that way but 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 ultimately it's 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 their project and then it benefits the, the greater kind of picture that that's just got to be the way to to go you you, know? you've, you filmed something like that in in Europe as well in Italy with the uh, Italy's wild heart yeah. docu and i only got yeah. i didn't finish it i got 3 quarters of the way through <laughs> on it um, that's okay. and that's not because it wasn't compelling it's just purely because of my I, I watched all of no i watched all of your content in the last 24 hours stranger, stranger things stranger things four is much more interesting stranger, <laughs> I, well i haven't i haven't watched stranger things one so i, I i'll have to i'll have to take your word for that but i but i watched that and these rewilding projects for me give me real hope i mean we're trying to do it on a small scale here so we can then show that it can be done on a large scale like we don't need to be using chemical fertilizers and herbicides that ruin all the coral reefs and pollute yeah. all the areas and destroy all the insect life, which destroys all the bird life, which destroys etc. Yes. etc. Et you know, ecosystem collapse. <laughs> um, so we're trying to show it on a small area, and then we're going to expand and expand. But it's really encouraging to see in Europe that there are countries yeah. like Italy that are doing it on a on a large scale. That- there, there's a absolutely there, there's a theme in, in a lot of the films that I've sort of had the privilege to make um, that the general theme that seems to be cropping up quite a lot in in the human wildlife um, sphere is coexistence. It's 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 how how can you make um, coexistence work? Because we're here on the planet, the wildlife are here on the planet. Like we're both gonna for the time being be be neighbors so it's uh it's addressing that um in a in a kind of more sensible less kind of um romantic fashion because we know that people have to live and farm and eat and all these things but also so does the wildlife needs uh it's it's areas to roam it needs to build up so we know humans are a, a big problem on the planet but we are here too so it's the, the to see that in europe um that was in the apennines in in italy um it's in an area in called abruzzo uh, which is right in the middle of um the right in the middle of italy in the apennine mountain range and um it's where you find the last um uh, Marsican brown bear population which is Italy's brown bear. And, and there's only uh, exactly in the Apennine, the Apennine wolf, which is a, a sub kind of version of, of the, the European wolf. It, it, it kind of, it, it's how wildlife used to be. It, this this very ancient area. And it's, it's mad to think it's only two hours from Rome. Mm. But you've got this area where 
this is what the the wild things used to be like before we started expanding in such an aggressive way so you do like i like if anyone's in italy and you know if ever you go like go to the apennines it's so wild and you know you've just got such an abundance of life but it is peppered with human settlements from and because of the the it's very unchanged since sort of um roman times almost the the, the way of life up there is, is is lots of farming and um sort of living with the land uh because it's not sort of a, a through road or through route it's you have to get to it um so the story the story and the the project that I, I managed to capture um, or tried to capture at least because <laughs> it was so incredibly complicated was um, yeah ha- these initi- these initiatives and these uh, real kind of amazing ways of, of working with the wildlife um, rewilding Apennines uh, is the, was the organization um, and again it comes to building up this culture of conservation because you're getting a lot of clashes with the, the the shepherds will have a lot of their flock taken by wolves. The bears will also, that's fair game for them. They'll go in and trash the honey um, areas that their bears will be falling into wells. It's trying to miss. So it's through an idea of corridors, the uh, Apennines are broken up into a few national parks and protected reserves. And so what, the Apennines, rewilding Apennines team are doing and working with are creating these corridors within each national park. And within those corridors, these are areas where everything, um, they would call them coexistence corridors. Within these areas, agreed with the farmers and agreed with the people who live in them, um, they they will bear-proof the... uh, the, the the hives they will put they will work on covering the wells they will work on um taking away barbed wire um they will create these easy corridors so that if the farmers see that in doing that their produce increases they uh, are able to farm better and without these clashes they recognize that the wildlife bring benefits so again it's that win-win concept uh, and there's actually a town called Petrano Silgiutio, which is the first bear smart community, they call it, where the whole town is in on this conservation. The entire town wants to build a utopia for bears and wildlife alike around it. Incredible. And the whole the whole model is wicked. <laughs> like, it's really cool because it's just showing that on a very small scale in this area, like it can work. And I think like, if you're going to start trying to rewild the world in its concept, because we, we know this concept of rewilding is, uh, you know, it, it's quite an appealing thing, isn't it? Everyone's like rewilding this, rewilding that. It's great. But you just, if you, I think like from what they were sort of showing me and what the Savo guys are showing me is it seems that starting very small seems to be like the, the way to. Well, it's safe to fail to, when you yeah. do it small safe and that's and in a complex situation where you can't predict the outcome (coughs) you have to make safe to fail experiments Uh, yeah we've got 10 raised beds with different plants in to see which ones are going to work on a farm (laughs) because i don't want to put 10 beds of oregano or or asparagus in to find out it doesn't grow very well here 
Um, yeah. So you want to do these safe to safe to fail areas. Um, but so in that footage, the, there's there's footage of the bears, and there's footage yeah. of the wolves, and the footage of the wolves looks like you got quite close to them, which, oh, I'm, we did. which yeah. I'm really surprised that you managed to get that kind of footage. And how long were you there for? I was I was there, I only had two and a half weeks yeah, to so. film the project, and I it was super ambitious. You know, it was. I'm going to go and film bears. I'm going to go and film this. It's such an arrogant way. Yeah, of and you did. <laughs> planning. No, I mean, the bear footage, I've got to say, I, I managed to speak to a, um, a wildlife filmmaker who lived nearby called Bruno, and he was able to um, help me with the bear footage because I didn't see any. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay, okay. So you borrowed that footage. Yeah, yeah. It's not mine. Um, but, uh, yeah, some, some of the wolf stuff uh, was shot by myself and uh that was that i was so lucky because it was a, a lot of um sleeping near carcasses <laughs> uh, okay you were bait uh, you were baiting them were you no 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 these are these are um these were um I'd say cattle or or um any wildlife that you know you, if if you you can see from you get wind of um, a, a dead animal nearby, and it's luck of the draw if you you set up a hide nearby. Okay, okay the, so it's a naturally dead animal. You haven't brought in some. Oh food no no no, we haven't. We, we haven't. No no no, absolutely not. No, we're not there to like bring change the course of the. Because I know some fit. some uh, some BBC wild was it BBC Earth? I, they they, <laughs> they there was a controversy over them filming golden eagles eating a fox carcass. Because they found out that they bought the fox carcass from a local hunter or trapper and put it out, yeah, and then they came good. in. And I didn't see that as a big deal, to be honest. I mean, they kill foxes, and the chances of actually being able to film two wild yeah. golden eagles killing a fox is going to be pretty rare. So no, agreed. Sticking down a dead goat, well, maybe not a dead goat, because that's only going to encourage more De a dead fallow deer or whatever local species. But yeah, you didn't have to. No, it's it's, it's a tough one because you, you want to like sh show the subject in a kind of close, intimate way, but you don't want to like change its course of na its natural mm. course of doing things. Um, we were it was actually it was a cow carcass, so from a um a, a farmer again because it's such close proximity to you're in the wild but these cows are roaming also pretty wild as well um and it had died and we got a sort of tip off that it was a relatively fresh uh cow carcass so it was luck of the draw you know sitting in this beautiful area with a with a stinky dead cow just down the road you know and just set up a hide and just waited in the rain uh for uh two days i think it was it was one evening and one like and then the next day um yeah we it were lots of early starts and lots of like revisiting the cow carcass and you know again the time frame is quite short because you got to film the rest of your whole project and it was it was just gone it's just one last sit by this cow that was in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and uh and, and and out came the apennine wolf just sniffing around so so lucky um because they are very quite very elusive um I, it was a long shot really was a long shot <laughs> you know you can do it, it's good you know with wildlife filmmaking you can do all the planning in the world but then up the the last bit is 
and setting yourself right and making sure you've got everything lined up and you're camouflaged in the right way and you're you're set up so that you just need to press that button but then obviously your film star needs to turn up <laughs> yeah it's like being and a hunter and many people come back empty hand i mean more people come back empty handed oh, yeah. than do oh, i have so many times i've just been filming bushes yeah. <laughs> and i've got so many, just like willing a bear to arrive come on i have a friend go. who's a bow hunter in he lives in uh in washington state and he goes to idaho he goes to wyoming he he gets all of these tags and i think he i mean deer are relatively easy to get but he goes elk hunting and I'm pretty sure yeah. the last four years when he's sending me videos of him elk hunting, he can hear an elk, he can see tracks of an elk, but he's not for four or five years. And he's a really good yes. hunter. He's not caught an elk. You know, he's not shot it an elk because <laughs> you've got to be close to it. This was it. We were seeing wolf prints everywhere. We were seeing wolf scat. We were seeing what they're eating. There were just loads of it around. We're like, where are these wolves? Like, it's not going to see them. Um yeah, and again, it, coming back to that senses dialed, you sit there with the rain pattering on your, um, on your kind of makeshift camouflage, and you're you're just listening to everything. The, the wind going through the trees, the cracks. The, what was that? Oh no, sorry, that was uh, that was my dinner. Sorry, <laughs> you know, every everything. You're like hoping that's something, hearing that something, and it's quite cool. The process of that does again like dial you back in your senses get numbed when you're underwater and i saw that you've got photos of you with tiger sharks oh yeah big tiger awesome. sharks as well not small ones and yeah are you, are you baiting those or are you just going in an area where they're known to be that was in um that was for um the, the formula marine conservation project um in the maldives and they have a huge concentration of tiger sharks in um in that area it's an amazing island because it's not like the rest of the the atolls that are kind of these lagoon type things this is right out in the southeast part of the maldives which is open ocean so it drops off really deep really quickly uh, so you get quite a lot of the big stuff coming really close to to land and these tiger sharks live by the harbor because they know that that's where Food a lot of the food scraps, everything. They're amazing tiger sharks. They're essentially these great big like dogs underwater. They're with, you know, very big teeth. But <laughs> the, the way they act is they'll be sniffing around. And uh, yeah, I'd never swam with such big sharks before. I'd never. What was, the, you know, you, what was that like? You die. Oh, it was epic. Yeah. You, again, you, you jump off the boat. <laughs> You know that you're only eight meters down. It's not very deep, but you know that they're around, and you can hear the thudding of the the engine above your head. And um, the the guys do they do chum. They chuck a bit of um, uh, some 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 scraps of fish down, and um, it kind of floats down. But again, you have this sort of bit of a cloud of of blood around you, and you just. It, the the thudding and the the sort of you're, you're on edge and you're looking around where's it going to come from and then just suddenly from the murk then come these tiger sharks and they were i was like oh my god they're massive <laughs> they are absolutely massive they're not interested in you in the slightest because there's food there's also plenty of food in the area anyway so 
all these kind of thoughts of oh my god it's going to come for me like that you're, you're not naturally their food anyway you're... no not at all no you the, the in this moment you're gonna get bitten by a shark by uh in the same way if you put your hand in a hungry dog's dog bowl mm. you're gonna get bitten by a dog and that's just really stupid <laughs> why would you do that um so you get to observe these massive tiger sharks right up close and it was it was awesome you know they're swimming right by you and sniffing around looking at you and just sort of yeah just that you can see they're just really powerful but also just no threat whatsoever. do you have to control your movements in a particular way obviously they're they're attracted uh, yeah. to commotion and struggling. yeah you, i mean you're not you're not you're not going to really want to start you know thrashing around and, and annoying it you just sort of need to again like all things be quite respectful um to to a natural course of things so you need to sort of maybe try and hide behind a rock uh or just 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 chill out and sit down you know <laughs> sit down and be respectful <laughs> um and and also when you're trying to film obviously you do need to be steady so uh you're that that in itself kind of is quite useful because you're just having to regulate your buoyancy and you need to keep yourself steady so in doing that you sort of yeah. calm yourself down yeah. um and that's yeah that's quite cool so what are you working on next what's the oh the next the next project well i need to edit this okavango thing um i've got a load to edit there and i need to finish editing the Savo trust film uh so we have two big films that are gonna be coming out quite soon um and then there's a potential uh shoot with an amazing com company called nature metrics which are, they do a thing called the e-bio atlas um which is essentially working out what uh, species live around water sources so you do eDNA so you basically take like a, a syringe sample of a water source and it'll tell you what lives in that area so it's a more kind of concise way of mapping hmm. the wildlife rather than visually seeing it and that's all so about... and that's DNA is it yep yep in the water yeah, yeah. so it's Incredible. It, the, the, these guys are going out there to create this big atlas around the world of um, what we have on our planet but in a more concise way than than visual like aid um because right. you know a lot of these especially in water you know it's hard to to say what actually sort of lives in the area so uh so yeah that that's a project that is in in works at the moment and when um, and the, your current films yeah. and when you finish editing these current the two that you're working on now where can we watch those um well uh if the if if um if we're lucky enough that it'll go on to various film festivals, uh, the film festival circuit, it's mainly in online uh, platforms, socials. Um, and yeah, we were like, I mean, we were really lucky with Ngumu was to get into, got into the Kendall mountain film festival. And um, uh, they, they, it's great that you can take these films and go onto a wider circuit around the world with them. Um, I, I really enjoy that, that platform. Uh, so yeah, they, they are more, online i would say yeah well i've i watched as i said the ngumu and the rewilding film um on youtube but they were on other people's channels you you don't have a channel on there yourself or you do uh, i mean i've got I, I where can we my, where can I mean, we I, where can people find you i mean it's ollie underscore pemberton I, I, I say probably, to be honest uh I, I would probably say the best thing is um it is, is instagram these days isn't it 
it's uh it i have i have the website uh my my own personal website but uh what's I think the instagram domain ollie you're doing a terrible job of advertising your website and instagram here <laughs> you're, meant, you're meant to give us the domain or don't you know what it is i can tell you if you want to know what it is yeah. no thank you <laughs> i will be more with all right guys if you want to check it, make sure, exactly. let me do better I, how do i do it do i do a bit more of a sales pitch like, uh, you, you do it however you want yeah <laughs> Everything was fantastic up to the point where you had to had to sell yourself. (laughs) I know it's awkward, isn't it? If you want to check out more of my stuff um, and more about the projects that I've been working on um, uh, and see see more on the visual side of it, um, Ollie O double L Y underscore Pemberton P E M B E R T O N. That's my handle on Instagram. It's probably going to be the best place to to see that. And then my website. Um, where you can actually find out a little bit more detail of some of the projects and how they've impacted, um, uh, so, you know, how, how we work on the impact areas uh, uh, in, the, in the subjects we work on. Four Horn Productions, that's uh, just Four Horn Productions. Number four or word four? F-O-U-R. F-O-U-R, sorry, that's a good point. F-O-U-R, Horn Productions uk. Four Horn, because of, that's a, a good nod back to the... Uh, the Isle of Man with our four horn sheep uh, that we yeah. have. We'll put all the links into the show notes. Anyway, before I before I let you go, because I'm aware of time, um, that snow lion, snow leopard. Yes. We didn't com- entirely complete the story. How the hell did you end up being able to film it? Because <laughs> it has to be one of the most elusive creatures on the planet. And you said you were lucky. Yeah. How many days did you have to be in the mountains to be lucky? Or did you just get out of a car exactly. and there it was? Do you know, a lot, a lot of the, the, the shoots that I've been on, because it's low impact, um, unfortunately, you don't have endless budgets. Like the bigger, um, the, the bigger productions perhaps can be there for about three months. But uh, we had a cap on that. So I'm bringing the sort of realism side to the story is that you, 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 you can't, if you like you can't just go off uh, for months on end you have a, a certain time frame so we had 12 days <laughs> to try wow. and ambitiously Shoosh. snow leopards yes um and which day did you say film it on on day 11 <laughs> the land, like literally the day out like we were leaving so um and i say luck like it was luck but um, it, I wouldn't have had any of this luck if it wasn't for the local team who I was working with, the people who, the local, um, the guys from in and around the Hermes National Park work for, uh, they're often guides in the area and they're spotters themselves. So I had these two amazing guys with me, um, Tamchos and one girl. And uh, it was Tamchos who found the snow leopard on day... Uh, 11 uh, as we were literally packing up and we were in a place called Rumbak, um which is it was pretty uh, i can't remember the altitude but it was definitely near 4000 so enough to 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 sort of um feel feel your breath lagging a bit uh, meters had, meters um, not feet just so people realize meters meters yeah, yeah so <laughs> 12000 meters above 12000 feet <laughs> yeah just above sea level yeah. uh, <laughs> um yeah, that easy. Very hard. Um, yeah, we haven't got very high mountains in the Isle of Man, so <laughs> probably about four. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, it had the most snowfall, I think, 
they said for the last 10 years um, in the area. So it was incredibly hard trudging around, um, you know, up to waist deep snow, just walking around at that altitude with all your kit. And I had this massive lens, this 800 millimeter small pony of a lens. <laughs> it was ridiculous because I wasn't going to take any chances because as you say, they're so elusive and they'll be in the other valley, you know, miles away on a small dot. But Tamchos found this thing. Um, I had all but given up and we were spending the morning with this beautiful family in the Rumbach Valley um, in their house. And they were sort of, um, we were having butter, buttermilk tea, which is the usual kind of tea out there, which uh, yeah, well, wasn't a huge fan of, but it was, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite bitter. But it was, you know, when it's that cold, you're like, oh yeah, that'll do. Um, and we were just chatting and, uh, Tam Chos just ran in and said, um, I, I, I found it. <laughs> and I was just like, unpacked everything again, ran out. And, uh, it was, it was the, the other, the other valley, um, that, uh, that, that we were, he was looking at, I mean, eight, just a huge distance away, kilometers away. So we then. But still there down. by the time you got there. It was a mating pair. Uh-huh. So he was like, so we looked at it and, you know, that, that moment of looking at the snow leopards, because um, we, like I said, we'd been searching uh, all, all, all the 11 days. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'd sort of pretty much given up, but Tam just didn't want to give up. I was like, no, we're not going to see them. Let's just enjoy, let's enjoy breakfast. And he goes, well, you know, let's just go out and have another look. So, all right, fine, let's go. And uh, yeah, when we found it, he was like, he found this mating pair sitting on um, uh, high up and uh, he said, they're not going to go anywhere because they are sort of into, um, into their, into their moment now. So, you know, we can, uh, we can try and get closer. So we climbed up and up and up and up um, through the snow and, and with all this heavy equipment and managed to find a sort of bit of a cliff edge to, to hang on to and set up this enormous lens. It was, it was quite funny because it's the, uh, I don't know if you've seen Walter Mitty. Secret have. Life of yeah, Walter. yeah, I have. Yeah. There's that moment where um, Sean Penn is, is, is sitting there and he's like, some things are just not worth filming. I thought about that for about three seconds and thought, <laughs> absolutely bugger that i'm gonna film this (laughs) i'm like i I am here to film the snow leopards so i'm gonna i got the sentiment but i was like no 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 let's film well i'm glad i'm glad you did the footage i I saw the footage on on your instagram but is there anywhere else where we can where that can be seen because it's a it's a short amount of footage on instagram isn't it yes yeah it's a short film um in the search of the snow leopard again it's on it's online um and uh again more details on instagram i think is the best place to 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 find them but uh yeah incredible it is it was one of the most uh i would say it's one of the best wildlife well just moments in general it was so special um it you you stayed filming these guys until and then it was only until the tamcha said we do need to get down because it's getting dark (laughs) and this is not safe and you get so engrossed in these guys' lives, filming them, and I just didn't want to leave. I did not want to leave these snow leopards, but you have to just, for that brief moment, just accept it. You've got to go, 
nod thank you to them and then pack up and then we had to climb down climb in the dark which was a bit spicy to be honest <laughs> it's not great but you you just you just just buzzing you know it's those kind of moments that make it all worthwhile i can't say i'm not jealous i can't say that i'm not jealous that you're living the life that in the alternative reality i would have liked to have been living uh but i i, I think you're about to jump out and go surfing in bali so well i'm not it's uh 6 30 p.m on a friday and i'm about to go and have dinner so i before my next podcast um so <laughs> but i'll be oh, okay. I'll, I'll i'll be i'll okay. be surfing tomorrow yeah and if you ever oh, wanna, cool. if you ever want to come and visit bali come and i've be, never come been be, i guess i love, i would love to I, I love surfing on the, the west southwest coast here but you know it doesn't have that same appeal i'm sure as bali no it's pretty special here um ollie thank you for your time it's been a complete blast and uh, i can't wait for people to hear all these different stories and all of these different adventures you've been on we'll get we'll Thanks, get Mike. we'll get you back on after the next couple of adventures so you can update us on what you've been doing awesome mate thanks so much thank you